You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. I do love the fact we're an international family together. Um, Kwame and Jess and I know baby Zion have been out to Uganda recently. And uh, my daughter is in Uganda and they met up at a family party. And uh, my daughter, some of you know, is fairly sort of um, flamboyant. She goes up to everyone going... I'm Kwame's pastor's daughter. Hello. <laughs> I'm Kwame pastor's daughter. Hello. So she had a great time and really appreciated seeing you guys in Uganda. If you've got a Bible, I'd love it if you could turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Obviously, I want to speak to all of us this morning, but I've very much got parenting in mind. Um, parenting is a wonderful privilege. I have three children. As I said, I've got a daughter. Lois is 18. My son Josh is 20 and my other son... Uh, Isaac is going to be 17 next month and learning to drive, so watch out. I'm sure that you discover much as parents. My mum had three kids. She had three boys. Uh, She discovered something about me on my wedding day, much to my embarrassment. The reality was that um, our family didn't have lots of money. Ah, might be appropriate at that point. And so I used to go to school, and my mum made me a really nice packed lunch. She, she lived for her three boys. She'd make these individual sandwiches. She used to do two homemade cakes and put them in my packed lunch every day. And do you know what I used to do as soon as I got to school? I used to sell it. <laughs> I'd sell the packed lunch, and I'd meet my brother in the library at first break and share his, and we split the cash. And I did this for years, and my mum discovered on my wedding day when my other brother snitched on me. Reality is, we're going to be reading about a boy and what he did with his packed lunch, which was totally different to mine. And hopefully, this will uh, stir all of us. So if you've got a Bible, John chapter 6 and verse 1. Sometime after this, that is after chapter 5, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, one of the twelve disciples, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He only asked this to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. 
After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe this is your word. We believe it is truth for us today. Lord, whether we've heard this passage many times, or it's our first ever, we ask that you'd speak to us. For your glory. Amen. I think that this is a, a massive story in the Bible. Why do I say that? Because there are four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all four of them decide to put this story in. So it's obviously really important for us. Now, there's many details that we could pick up in a story, and to really understand the plot, you've got to look a little bit at the details. We know that they've gone to the far shore. We think that was the east side of the lake. We think that most of the Jews were living on the west side. We know that they'd gone up a mountain. The whole purpose of this is to say that it was lonely, isolated. They were getting away from everything. In fact, some commentators have thought this is the Golan Heights, and you'd read about those today. We know that it was the Passover. John mentions the Passover three times in the Gospel, and every time it's to try and bring out a point. I believe this point it would have reminded them that actually the Passover was around the desert. It was a hard time. It was a difficult time. And so there's almost a challenge that is going to be coming out of here. But the thing that we cannot miss to really get the story is that it is big. There's a great crowd. How many times does it say? It says it twice. Great crowd, great crowd. It says so many. It says 5,000 men. To try and understand some of this, I read what are called commentaries. Well, many of the commentaries are saying, well, if that's just the men, if you included women and children, they reckon that this was the feeding of the 20,000. It was that kind of massive thing. Now, you've got to remember, there was no Deliveroo in those days. You couldn't literally just phone and say, send me a pizza. You couldn't say, oh, I fancy Chinese tonight. I mean, this was a dilemma. They were in the middle of nowhere. They had this hungry crowd. And Jesus throws out this question. Now, I don't know what your situation is, but I'm fairly confident, if not today, this week, if not this week, this month, if not this month, I would guarantee this year you will face a dilemma. As parents, we face it all the time. I mean, you know, I'm feeling my age now because I think, golly, when they're small like that, you can just pick them up and move them, can't you? When they become teenagers, negotiation just seems to take so much longer. I mean, that's why we give them an allowance, isn't it? Because if we can't negotiate, we cut the money. No, no, it's not meant to be like that. But there is this whole thing, isn't there? We have so many things that we have to face. How do these people face this dilemma? I want to quickly look at four responses. The first one is Philip. So Philip was a disciple, and I haven't got a picture of a disciple, so I've stuck a silhouette up here. He was one of the 12. Philip, we know, lived locally. Why is that? Because actually, if you read the beginning of the book, John 1, 44, when he's called to follow Jesus, we know that he comes from this area. And so I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because who does Jesus ask the question to first? He asked the local boy. 
I, I guess it's, uh, uh, please, this is a warning now. This is absolute truth. You know, if you go down to the end of the road here now, you can't turn left in your car. You know, they've just changed it in the last week. Local people know that. You will get a ticket sent to you if you leave the church and turn out there and go left. Local people would start knowing this. You know all the little rat runs around here, don't you? So if you suddenly, you know, if someone said to me, where's the best pizza in London? Where would you say? Ealing. Ealing. San Marino's, isn't it? It's meant to be. Local people know that. And so often, if you want to discover something, you think, who are the locals? How do I find out about this place? And so you feel like there's almost, Jesus throws out this question, doesn't he? And then what I find fascinating is Philip goes straight to what he could personally do. He goes, money. He says, one denarii. A denarii was one day's wage for a laborer. And so basically, he does the math. He says, eight months' wages. Golly, that's 200 days because they would have worked six days a week. He said, 200 days' worth of money probably would only offer enough for them to have one bite. And so Philip, when he's suddenly given this challenge, he goes straight to, golly, I need to think of what resources have I got? What money have I got? I find this fascinating because I read the Gospel of John this week getting ready for this. Philip was at the wedding in Cana when Jesus multiplied the wine. Philip was there when the woman was beside the well and she gets saved and a whole village gets turned around. Philip would have been there when the royal official's son was healed at some distance. And they said, wow, that's a miracle. You weren't even there. Philip saw it. Philip was there I hate to say this to us, when the old man, 38, was paralyzed and healed. Philip had seen all of that, and yet when he faced the dilemma, he looked at his own resources. I think that's a huge challenge, isn't it? Philip went straight to the physical, the material, what he could attain, what he could achieve. He looked at himself, and he realized, actually, there's no hope. If I'm brutally honest... The best that I could possibly do is give everyone a bite. I mean, you know, you try, I try and put this into sort of modern day, and, and I know everyone says, oh, what's a wage worth? I was thinking, five guys. I mean, how much is a burger and chips at five guys? Nine quid, ten quid? If you were to feed 20,000 people on that, that's 200,000 pounds. So you suddenly, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe some of you think that's not a problem. And if that's not a problem, I'm going to take the offering again. <laughs> because for most of us, we think, I couldn't afford that. The best that I could possibly do. Man, if I, I just brought a few buns and said, look, just have a bite. He realized that in himself, he couldn't do it. And then another disciple comes into this dilemma, this challenge. And this one is Andrew. He's another of the 12. Jesus chose 12. These were the ones that were really closest to him in the three years, as well as being the, the, the brother of Simon. We know that he was a resourceful person. I guess if Philip, uh, sorry, if Andrew had been alive today, you'd probably nickname him Google. He was that kind of guy. He, he just seemed to, he was always connecting people with Jesus. So he had lots of connections. I mean, if this guy had ever done, you know, who wants to be a millionaire, he would have been the phone-a-friend kind of chap. He, he knew contacts. He's often doing those kind of things. I find it fascinating that already here, yeah, I don't know how many of you have seen the film, you know, Dad's Army, 
It's that one guy who's always got stuff, you know, contraband inside his jacket, isn't there? You know, you, you fancy something, I can get you anything. You could imagine him being a little bit like this. I've got friends that could help. I've got people that I could go to. As soon as the problem is there, I find it fascinating. Because, I mean, 5,000, we said 20,000 in total, he's already discovered the one boy with a packed lunch. I mean, that's quite impressive, really, isn't it? You know what I'm saying? I mean, he would have been constantly scouring the crowd. I don't know if he had a team. I don't know if he was just thinking ahead. I think what's interesting is he was looking around for other people to try and solve the dilemma. And even then, if he was really honest, he said, how far would that go amongst so few? How far will it go? You see, it's interesting because sometimes you think if, if we really understood the dilemma we're in, we think the best that we can offer, will it really solve it? You see, I can sometimes say, oh, I don't know. It, it, my brother's really impressive. Maybe if I could get him to help. My dad's really helped. My boss is really good. If my boss opened a few doors for me, maybe that would make life successful. And we could end up looking around at other people if we can't do it within ourselves and think, maybe my kids will satisfy me. Maybe my wife will satisfy me. Maybe my career, my job, my hobby, something's going to come in and bring me this kind of satisfaction. But actually, Andrew looks at this and still doubts. He says, I'm just not sure he's going to do it. So then the third group of people I'd like to quickly look at was the crowd. The, the, the crowd. Word had got out that something was going for free. Good news travels fast, doesn't it? I was with a friend about a month ago. Unfortunately, he doesn't live in Ealing. He was a bank manager. And he told me that his bank, by mistake, had put £20 notes in the £10 column for the machine. So if you turned up and you pressed and you said you wanted £10, it gave you 20 And I said, how did you find out? He said, because the machine kept emptying so quickly. This is no word of a lie. If you bank with NatWest, you've been subsidizing somebody else's fun elsewhere. He said, yeah, it took us a couple of weeks to realize this. <laughs> We'd been stacking the machines in the wrong column. I said, well, what do you do about it? He said, we've just got to write it off, haven't you? He said, because what suddenly happened is somebody went there and they got some money out and they'd asked for it and they thought, oh, I was getting 10 pounds, I was getting 20. So they were just inviting friends and family. We discovered that there'd been a queue at this cash point machine for, for the couple of weeks until they realized why it was going so quickly. Good news travels. I find it fascinating like this. Although the, the Gospel of John, which is written with a very intense purpose, doesn't record lots of individual miracles, we know that right in the beginning that he refers to loads of healings. So the crowd had heard there's good news, and they thought we're going to follow. The crowd were there because Jesus fed the masses. Last time I took my son back to university, I did a bit of trip down memory lane. Not done it for a long time, I've got to be honest. My wife wasn't there, so I think I enjoy these events more without her. Beady eyes. We went to all-you-can-eat buffet at Pizza Hut. I mean, it's just, I, I don't know. To me, that is just, me and my son, that's as close to heaven as you can get. Let's just sit down here, son. Yeah, your mum's not here. I should tell her we had salad. We both had a tomato. I didn't lie. 
I used to go with a friend. He could demolish 12 bits of pizza when I could only get up to about six. I mean, there's something about God. As much as you can eat, it's just incredible, isn't it? What, I think, surely this is what the crowd were following Jesus for. I, I don't know if you picked this up. But, you know, Pizza Hut weren't the first ones to get on in this. The all-you-can-eat buffet lunch didn't start at the Yeti over the road. It, it was here. Jesus didn't just say, look, one sandwich each, give them one, tell them to keep walking, that'd be enough. They'd get home on one. I mean, as much as you could eat. Golly. I mean, how generous was Jesus? In fact, and some of the Bible commentaries said that this was a particularly poor area of the country. That actually they'd been taxed heavy. They could often, they were agricultural. When the crops came, people could come and steal it. And so actually, there'd been a sort of sense of struggling. And these people believed that, you know, if you, if you got all of this, it was a real blessing. And so they loved it. They absolutely loved it. Who wouldn't? And so the crowd, I guess they then think, hey, this guy must be the prophet. Now, for some of us, we don't understand really what that term means. Well, if you were a Jew in those days, you would have remembered the words of Moses. And Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And so they'd had this sort of word hanging over the nation. One day this prophet will come. One day the prophet will come. And so suddenly when Jesus starts giving out all this free food... The crowd starts saying, hey, is this the prophet? Is he the one? This is what they're thinking. I find it fascinating that they refer to the 500 men. Because actually, we can see what's in the crowd's mind. It's like, we want an army. What they're trying to say is, you see, they'd always believed that this Messiah would come and he would set the people free. You imagine it, if you suddenly get 5,000 men up and ready to go, you think we could take a city now? They were thinking about what could Jesus do for me. In fact, there was one commentator that even said that the way the crowd approached Jesus, and I know this probably seems bizarre, they decided they wanted to kidnap him. I've got to be honest, I kidnapped somebody once. I thought I'd just let you in on that. When I was a student, it used to be called Freshers' Week, and the idea was you had to raise money for charity. As students, I hadn't thought the consequences of this. We decided to hold a shop up with bananas. So we went along with bananas and tried to take the shopkeeper away and told the shop they could have their shopkeeper back if they paid the ransom. It was all for charity. This was a long time ago. I didn't realize it wasn't a wise thing to do. It's almost like, I want this person and I'm only going to give him back if you give me some money because I've got to raise money for charity. I'm not saying that was the right way of doing it. Don't take that from this morning's message. But actually, some commentators reckon that actually what these people would do, they really wanted to kidnap Jesus. Kidnap Jesus. You see, what they wanted to do is say, we want Jesus to be our king. We want him to serve our agenda. You see, the crowd, they weren't necessarily thinking about how do I serve Jesus. They were really thinking about how does Jesus serve me? Oh, I like it when he gives me food. And I'd really like it if he threw off the Romans. They had their own agenda. I think that can be a challenge for many of us that come to church regularly. 
do, if we're really honest, do we approach Jesus and, and say, I'd like you to bless me with the best job I could get, least hours, most money? Do we think Jesus served me? Do we think, oh, well, actually, Jesus, I, I, I really want you to... Uh, how many prayers, if we're really honest, are praying about Jesus? I want you to do something for me. I guess that's how the crowd approached Jesus. And then the fourth one that I want us to think about is this little boy. We don't know his name. In fact, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't mention him. He's almost that insignificant to the story. What we do know is he's poor. How do I say that? Well, barley bread was considered the cheapest of the cheap. In fact, there was a, a Jewish historian called Josephus who said bar, barley bread was, was too vile for human consumption. In fact, in those days, sometimes you had to bring a sacrifice if you'd done something wrong. If you'd been caught in adultery, sex outside of marriage in those days, you brought barley bread because it was a sign that you'd done something connected to the beast. It was considered that evil, that vile, that horrible. The poor ate barley bread. So this guy just brings along some barley bread. And, and, I, and even, I don't know about you, fish. I, I live in Hanwell. There's a lovely sort of fish shop there. You know, they've got these massive great things. It wasn't that kind of fish. But they often reckon that actually it was almost like a, almost a paste that you put on the bread because the bread was so dry it would stop you choking on it. I was thinking it's probably a little bit like a jam sandwich, but now and then I notice some people are really into it. You know, I was trying to think, how do I make this as, as real as possible? You could have a Subway and choose all your meats and all your salads like this, or you could just have a couple of bits of Morrison's Value bread with jam in it. I'm not knocking you if that's all you can afford. I'm just trying to say this was the, the picture. This is what happens. The tiny meal was ludicrously inadequate compared to the need. And yet this boy was radically different. I would say this boy was, I was going to say one in a million. I'm going to say one in 20,000. Because what happened with this boy is he decided to give his lunch to Jesus. So he didn't approach Jesus and say, oh, actually, you know, I can sort this out at my own resources. If I paid for this, I could get everyone food. He didn't actually say, I can go and find a friend and try and resolve it. He didn't even say, Jesus, you do something for me. He said, what I've got, I give to you. If you think about this, he was the only one in the crowd who didn't need the miracle. But actually he said, all I've got, I'm going to give to you. I think, what a radical approach for this young child. That's why so often, even when we do a dedication, we're trying to say, we've got to have childlike faith with God. We don't come and say, God, you do this for me. We come and we say, actually, all I've got, I surrender to you. I think that's the miracle of this story. Now, I've talked about Philip and Andrew and the crowd and Jesus, but if we're really honest, the main character is Jesus Christ. It's not necessarily even how do we respond to him. It's who is Jesus in this story? I want to say I honestly believe this story occurred. It's, it's recorded all four Gospels. This is not, oh, that's a nice idea. He's sharing his lunch. I'll share mine. <laughs> this is not some moral tale. This is a miracle. This is a provision. 
But actually, I think it's even more than that. Even more. You see, as a Jew in those days, you would have known about a classic story, which is our Bible, is in 2 Kings, chapter 4, verse 20, 42 to 44. It says this, a man came from Baal, Shalishar, bringing the men of God 20 loaves of barley, bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. Elisha was considered the sort of classic, one of the classic prophets in the Old Testament. How can I set this before a hundred men? His servant asked. But Elijah answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat it and have some left over. Then he set it before them and they ate it and, they, and had some left over according to the word of God. Oh, so it starts connecting the dots because what this miracle had done, hey, this mirrored something that happened in the Old Testament, which had been Elisha. Elisha had 20 loaves to feed 100. That's never going to go around that far. But he was assisted by a young servant. And actually, there was baskets of leftover. And so their eyes would have suddenly opened and thought, oh, Elisha, that great man of God. Oh, who is this Jesus? In fact, they wouldn't have just thought about Elisha because you would have thought in those days, wow, the one who provided bread for the many was Moses. You see, as a Jew, you would have remembered your history. Oh, it was Passover time. Passover was when they escaped from Egypt. And when they go into the desert, they suddenly say, God, we've got nothing to eat. And so Moses goes to God and says, God, feed them. And it says, manna came every day. Well, six days out of seven, they got double the amount because they weren't supposed to collect on the Sabbath, which was Saturday. And so actually, you could read about that in Exodus chapter 16. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border. 40 years, they reckon a population of one million people plus had had bread from God. Oh, Wow. Suddenly we see God provides bread. So this Jesus, oh, he's greater than, is he greater than Moses? Well, he is. And I know that I don't have long left, so you've just got to trust me on this. But if not, read the book when you get home. Because if you look in chapter 6, where I read from verse 1 to 12, if you scan down your Bible to verse 35, Jesus actually declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It's almost like I've given you abundant bread. I want to give you abundant life. And so this was the challenge. You see, these people recognized that they were physically hungry. I want to ask you this morning, do you recognize your spiritual need of God? Would you acknowledge, actually, I feel guilt. I feel shame. I realize that I don't do the things that I really would love to do. I get disappointed because I keep falling for I keep saying to I won't lose my temper, and I do. I keep thinking I'm not going to look at that pornography, but I keep going back. I keep thinking I'm not going to cheat on something, but I just can't help it. Do you recognize your need of God. 
Or are you still thinking, hey, maybe I've, I've got enough money, I can get myself sorted. Maybe you think, if I get enough connections, I'll get by. Maybe you think, well, look, if I could get God just to serve my agenda and meet my needs, I'll be done. Or this morning, will you come like the boy and say, actually, I give all to you? J.C. Ryle, he was the first ever Anglican Bishop of Liverpool, said this, and I know it can seem a little old, but it's very challenging. Weak and feeble and foolish as it may seem to man, the simple story of the cross is enough for all the children of Adam, that would be the whole world, in every part of the globe. I would still say today that we face this dilemma like here. And it's almost like Jesus would say, what are you going to do? Will you come and feed from him? Will you recognize, hey, my total need of him? This, we believe, is fantastic, great. This is why we do a Tony Jarrett event. At the end of the day, hog roast is going to be great. And if you don't even like pig, we will do you a vegetarian pig just to make you feel welcome. I'm not quite sure how it's going to work, but we're sorted out. But the real thing is, it's a great opportunity. As you leave today, you're going to be given two flyers for it. Take one and invite a couple of friends. Think, this is, I've got some great news. I don't want people to have to think I've got to do life on my own. I don't feel like I've just got to try and connect to a few others. I want them to come and think, hey, how could I surrender and find out about this Jesus? So I think it's, it's brilliant news for healing. Now, I'd like to challenge you if, you, if you are a regular here, if this is your church, this is why Wednesday night is so important. Because Wednesday is prayer and vision, and that's where we try and say, God, what do you want us to do? Not what do we want you to do. And that's why like, we've just done gift days as a church. Because what we're trying to say is, actually, it's not about my comfort or God blessing me. It's almost me saying, actually, how do I give everything to you? And that's why we sing. And you know, you might think, golly, I'm not really a singer. I don't know if this church is for me. I tell you, we sing because actually we live for him. Not so that he has to do things for us. The whole message of the Christian is not that people discover God, but actually we, we get caught up in what God is doing. That, to me, is the wonderful news of the gospel. This sounds a very sober thing. I shouldn't really end on it, so I'm going to try and think of another point to cover it up. Jesus ran away from those that tried to set the agenda. That's scary, isn't it? You see, it, we know at the end of this passage that actually it's almost like he, he flees up to the mountains. He says to the disciples, get in a boat, get out of here. Because he realizes that when we set the agenda, there's trouble. But when we surrender to him, there can be infinite blessing. Will you surrender to him rather than try and set the agenda?